Welcome to the next episode of Indie Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is the podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, we have Mick Graham, whose bio reads like a really well-written short story. Here we go. Starting as a laborer during the summer in high school, Mick was always fascinated and knew that construction was his calling. From working as a framing carpenter, to building with heavy timbers, to managing multifamily sites for production builders, Mick's experience is vast and varied. So anyways, Mick started Singletree Builders in 2012. Um, He realized that Edmonton's mature neighborhoods needed rejuvenation. He also discovered that there was a ton of challenges negotiating the city's complicated and frustrating zoning bylaws, other bylaws, infrastructure plans, everything, and of course, managing neighbors who don't necessarily welcome that new construction on their street. Um, So after that, he joined IDEA the Infill Development and Eminence Association to help the city create better legislation in order to help make mature neighborhoods healthier and more diverse. Mick has recently joined Hibco Construction as the general manager of the residential division, which is very exciting for both Mick, um, Hibco, and of course the Infill industry. It's a perfect fit because the Hibco team shares the same attitudes as Mick does towards customer service, quality, and city building. I think I speak for both of us when I say I'm excited to have Mick on. Oh, I am so excited to have Mick on. Uh, For most of you who are listening in the Edmonton region, you'll know that uh, me and Mick have a pretty close relationship. He was my president uh, of IDEA for two plus years, uh, and then uh, past president. He was the treasurer for a little bit. Now he sits on our infrastructure committee or heads the infrastructure committee. Uh, Him and I have gone to council numerous times. Uh, He's taught me a ton of things about home building that I had no idea about before. And he has like laid it out in meetings and helped us like really move the infill conversation forward. I've really enjoyed working for him and with him over the past few years. So yeah, we talked about it a little bit offline here, but uh, he has a really good way of taking some complex problems and complaining about them in layman's terms uh, in ways that kind of resonate with everybody. So I'm very excited about the episode today. Do we have anything that we need to define? Yes. And actually, that is a perfect segue because often you and I can get too technical, use too many technical jargony words. Uh, so there's a couple of things that we talked about. First was uh, Strong Towns. It's an online resource uh, that Mick and a lot of planners uh, often reference, a lot of people in the infill industry. They're a nonprofit media advocacy organization out of the U.S. that provides education and information to people that want to rethink on how we build our cities, everything for the end of the highway expansions, increasing transparency for local accounting practices, how much does city building actually cost, incremental housing, parking mandates, subsidies, uh, shifting local streets away from cars, uh, and introducing more different modes of transportation. They are incredibly useful articles. They also have a YouTube channel and a podcast, but the articles are really my favorite, and I think they're bread and butter. Yeah, I agree. Every couple weeks, I think they post something either I follow their YouTube channel um, and their uh, some of their articles as well. I haven't seen any of their webinars. Have you gone to any of their education courses or webinars? No, I haven't. Maybe we'll have to check them out. 
We will have to. Yeah, there's they have lots of information. They have lots of good writers, good content creators. There's always something that's very relevant to city building on their website for sure. And then the other thing that we should define before we get into the episode is growth management framework. So that's something that the city is working on right now. Uh, it is identified in our city plan of how we will inform the budgeting and planning process with infrastructure, amenities, and services delivered as a city to holistically evaluate priorities and growth opportunities, uh, which really boils down to how are we going to budget for city building uh, in the direction that we're looking to go. Uh, it provides uh, predictability and timing insurance for investments, so it helps the community understand where things sit, helps the development industry understand, uh, and they're looking at new opportunities around partnerships, policy, pricing, and investment uh, to really align the city and uh, our new direction laid out in City Plan. Yeah, it's very exciting. Mick talks about it a little bit in this episode. We'll probably talk about it a lot more as it gets rolled out. But yeah, we're this is a very important implementation tool for the City Plan. But anyways, let's uh, hear from somebody who's building our city. So Mick Graham started Singletree Builders in 2012 because he realized that many of Edmonton's mature neighborhoods were in need of rejuvenation. That's why he also joined IDEA to help the city create better legislation in order to make those mature neighborhoods healthier and more diverse. And he's recently joined Hibco Construction as the general manager of their residential division. Mick, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Mick, uh, du bist in Deutschland geboren, ja? Ja, und meine Mutter ist Deutsch. Ich habe erst Deutsch gelernt. Yeah, ich auch. I'm curious how your uh, um, being born in Germany there translated to your desire for the built environment here in Canada. I don't know if we could make a connection there. Um, I'm told that my on my mother's side, her uncles and, and so on were skilled carpenters, but uh, I've never actually seen any of their work. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So and let's flip into your history and journey to get here. You started working in the greenfield development industry here and then switched over to infill. Is that right? Actually, before that, I started laboring on a framing crew when I was about 15. I was a framing contractor here for several years before I became a site soup in more greenfield stuff and then a, a construction manager. So yeah, I spent about the first half of my career now in yeah in developing neighborhoods. Nice. And then uh, I want to ask you a little bit down the road here about uh, your involvement with IDEA, but I'm going to start with Singletree. What uh, what made you get started with uh, with Singletree in 2012? I think I had an itch to scratch that I wanted to be self-employed. I saw I was particularly interested in infill because it was architecturally interesting. So that was another itch I wanted to scratch. In greenfield neighborhoods, everything has to look pretty much the same. There's architectural controls, and I, I'm not really sure they use that term architectural a little loosely. Yeah, infill affords the opportunity to build what you want to build within the constraints of, of the zoning bylaws. So I, I really like that about it. And I was not terribly concerned all the way along about the comments I would get from people about how it doesn't match and how it, it stands out like a sore thumb and all these other comments that people have when they're nervous about the changes happening in their neighborhoods. Lastly, you joined Hibco recently. So the transition from having your own thing to going back and working for or with other people, what, what was that? Uh, what drove that? I love production. That, that's my forte and my my key interest. So I'm not that I'm not very good at marketing. Um, I don't like accounting. 
So it was really a blessing to join an organization where they had experts who could do that <clears throat> instead of leaving it to me to fumble through, um, leaving me to focus on, on production. So that was great. Philosophically, the HIBCO team and I are, are aligned. Uh, Hanny succeeded me as, as president of IDEA. So we're definitely on the same page as far as city building goes. Um, and it's been a fantastic experience so far. So Mick, you and I have spent a lot of time together over the past five years, and I don't know if I've ever really asked you about your Greenfield days. What were some of the barriers that uh, you faced or that the companies that you worked with faced uh, while building out in the suburbs? It really varied. One of the things I love about the construction business is that every day is different. You know, when the economy was was in full flow, it was tough to find labor. There were supply constraints. I remember one time when uh, the city was full bore building the Hende and a concrete plant went down in Alberta. It was, you know, everyone was scrambling to find to find concrete. So there was a lot of a lot of production uh, related challenges. So and that was that was always interesting. The key has always been to find a good team to surround yourself with uh, people who are who are keen to solve those sorts of problems. And uh, it generally turns out okay after that. One of the experiences I, I had while I worked at, at Landmark uh, Homes was was starting a prefab division there. That, that came out of production difficulties. There was a, a scarcity of labor because oil prices were high and real estate prices were rising and uh, labor costs were, were rising right along with them. So we decided to try doing the framing for these houses uh, and and you know, it was fairly consistent product. Uh, we were building more mostly for the multifamily divisions of Landmark. Uh, we decided to do it in a shop and uh, yeah, that was a really interesting process. We struggled to make money. Um, and since I left, they got a whole lot more sophisticated with, with machinery and more bigger facilities and, and better software support. But it was really interesting. And uh, um, I think they're probably making money now because again, labor prices have risen a lot. It's a tough business because you're competing with a guy with a pickup truck and some tools and a couple of buddies who who, uh, who can help frame. And, and framing, if you think about it, has evolved over the last hundred years so that it can be built more and more by unskilled people or semi-skilled people who don't have a lot of equipment. So it's really tough to compete with that when you, uh, you have to pay for a big facility and uh, full-time staff and you know all the back-end staff to support them. So... It's a really interesting challenge. Yeah, I, I might be wrong, but my brother started in construction and framing. He was shocked at how little training there was. Him and his buddies from out of high school building houses out in the outer areas of Edmonton, freezing their butts off in the wintertime. Yeah. I think part of the reason he moved out to Vancouver was so that he could skateboard more. And then the other half was so that he wouldn't have to frame in Edmonton winters anymore. And now he works on beautiful old heritage homes in Vancouver. <laughs> Good move. I know. Every time we go, they'll take us around some of the houses that he's worked on, and they're just unbelievably gorgeous over there. They, they've got a rich architectural heritage there. Yeah, but uh, I think they've done a good job of allowing density to exist within those heritage homes. Yeah, it's and it's something that uh, we seem to be learning here in Edmonton gradually. 
Yeah, the last time I talked to council about our heritage strategy, that was something that they were more into, interested in. But before we get down to heritage tangents, <laughs> we have talked a lot about EPCOR, you and I, uh, and gas and electrical and trenching. Is that something that uh, the Greenfield builders also have to deal with? Yes, I remember I was with the division of Landmark that built, built mostly... Uh, duplexes and and a little bit of row housing. At that time, there was no common trench system. So, uh, with a single family house, it's no big deal. You you trench down one side to install the gas connection, uh, and you trench down the other side for the electrical connection. When you're doing a duplex, however, you don't have two sides. So one unit gets connected on one side, the other unit gets connected on the other. So you are trenching. For your gas line and then crossing your fingers that when you trench your electrical in you don't cut through the gas line and boy it took uh, a lot of long aggravating conversations to uh to create the common trench system that they that they have now so yeah now they they dig one trench they put the gas down one side of it the electrical down the other side of it and they also put a conduit in there or actually, no, they pull the, um, I guess it's either fiber optic cable or, or coaxial cable for the TV internet connections as well. And it all goes into one trench and nobody has to worry about cutting the other the other party's uh, line and having to dig it all up again. There's no safety concerns, but man, it, it was really an uphill battle, which would surprise most people. Um, I, uh, I, and I don't really understand where the friction came from. Uh, it was certainly tried my patience. Yeah, I believe that. It's funny. I've been uh, in private sector for since about 2014, and common trenching was just kind of commonplace there. So thank you for your service, first of all. But uh, I want to transition a little bit into what made you get started and get involved with IDEA to begin with. I wanted to learn more about infill. I'd, I'd, I'd started my company on the strength of one large house. It was really interesting, and I, I could see the trend developing. Um, I'd lived in Calgary for a, a little while, uh, back around 1990, 91, and they were building skinny houses then. They, they were doing lot subdivisions. They don't call them skinny houses down there. They just call them houses. <laughs> they're, they're well ahead of us in, in that regard. But I could, see the, I could see the trend developing. I wanted like-minded company, and I knew that I didn't know very much. Of, I recognized that I had a lot to learn about urbanism and about planning and about the workings of the city and and so on. So I reached out to the Canadian Home Builders Association and they didn't really have anything happening as far as infill is concerned. And then I, I discovered IDEA and came out to a meeting of, I think, six or seven people. And yeah, it uh, was an interesting bunch with a lot of ideas about cities that I was really unfamiliar with uh, and, and definitely interested in. And then did you have any projects or anything that were kind of driving your desire to get involved with, with idea and infill, or was this just, you know, kind of a fact finding mission on, on what it was? I had some, I can't remember uh, off the top of my head, what projects I was worried about. I, I do remember uh, being kind of roped into speaking to council about, about lot splitting. There was a huge, it was a huge convulsion that Edmonton was undergoing at the time when when council was voting to reduce the minimum lot width from 33 feet to 25 feet, which which enabled this whole lot splitting skinny, uh, skinny house phenomenon, man, there was it was a public hearing and there was 
three days of people lining up to talk about it. And, you know, overwhelmingly the people were against it. And I kept hearing people stand up and say, you know, I, I, I agree that the city needs more density in its mature neighborhoods, just not my mature neighborhood. And I thought, are they really saying that with a straight face? Like, it was astonishing to me. It brought home to me that we need to have these conversations because it needs a lot more maturity about how cities develop than was present in that room. You know, I'm sorry to say, I, I mean, I was just learning it, but I felt like there was some willful blindness to to what was what was happening in Edmonton and what what should be happening. Yeah, and then you, if I'm not mistaken, you had a a larger project in a mature neighborhood that uh, went a little bit off the rails too. Is that right? It, it it's true. Yes, that was uh, a fellow idea member named Doug Kelly and I had tied up a lot in Glamora, hoping to build a, a twelve unit condo. Uh, it was going to be quite a high-end building, and it was aimed at residents of Glenora who'd lived there for 30 or 40 years and raised their children there and liked living there, and perhaps, you know, they have a place in Palm Springs. For whatever reason, they don't want to have a house anymore, and they prefer to live in a condo, but to stay in Glenora. And there really wasn't anything available, 2017, 2018, something like that. And we had some preliminary drawings done. We had uh, been able to negotiate a 60-day due diligence period. I reached out to the president and civics director of the Glenora Community League. I, I knew that Glenora wasn't always infill friendly. But the lot we'd chosen was at kind of the end of a, of a dead-end street. Uh, we were proposing a three-story building. So it would really only be casting shadows onto the road in front and onto a green space beyond the dead end. It felt like it was going to be a, a fairly innocuous building as far as neighborhood impact went. Uh, we were providing underground parking, so we weren't going to be clogging the streets up with cars. And sure enough, the uh, the civics director and the president said, this is fantastic. We've had residents asking us why when we could get a, a project like this, because, uh, you know, for exactly the reasons that foreseen. Unfortunately, uh, when the conversation turned to EPCOR, they pointed out that according to their their regulations, by in adding density, we would also need to add a fire hydrant. The water mains in the area were undersized to serve another fire hydrant, so we would have to add something. Like, I think it was 240 meters of, of water main, so you know, digging up the streets and digging deep trench, and it was going to be about a $700,000 bill. Optimistically, the return on that project was going to be about a million dollars. We uh, we abandoned it rather than doing all that effort, uh, mostly to benefit uh, EPCOR and, and the neighborhood. You weren't interested in volunteering for three years? That's a long haul <laughs> of volunteer work. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was kind of saturated. So it was really disappointing. Uh, I remember at a subsequent urban planning committee meeting talking about this project and how things needed to change in Edmonton and the frustration uh, that Mayor Don Iveson expressed about, you know, how we had to abandon a project that everybody wanted. Discouraging as the situation was, I was encouraged by that comment and, and uh, other councillors talked to me afterwards about, you know, how we needed to find a way to, to fund this sort of work. The problem was the model in Edmonton was that growth pays for growth. It was really focused on greenfield development. So 
you know, a developer creates a 150 lot parcel to sell lots on. Uh, he puts a bunch of infrastructure investment in it and he gets a return as the lot sell over the next 10 years. And, you know, that's a viable thing, especially when the, when the city is growing. But in an infill scenario where redevelopment is happening in dribs and drabs over the course of decades, that's a ton of money to put up front. And uh, it makes infill a whole lot less attractive to a developer than than spending that money in a greenfield development and getting your money back way faster. I remember when a senior administration uh, staff at the city of Edmonton told me that growth paid for growth when we were talking about uh, these infrastructure uh, issues. And I just thought that was such a narrow view on how we were going to redevelop our city. There was such a wider perspective we needed to take and a wider benefit to how we redevelop our neighborhoods. Uh, and thankfully, the city has pivoted since since that conversation. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it was such a, it felt very you know, stuck in a time frame of 20 years ago. But with all those changes since then, you and I have worked on tons of projects around infill, uh, one of them being around uh, infrastructure uh, and the cost share program for fire hydrants. Mm-hmm. What did you see as the big success of how we got that done? Boy, um, <clears throat> one of the frustrating things about talking to urban planning committee at that meeting was that it became really clear that we had no idea what the scope of the problem was. You know, was mine the only, you know, it was clear at that meeting that mine wasn't the only project that had been mothballed because of a huge infrastructure bill, but we didn't know, like, was it just the the half a dozen or so at that meeting or were there 10 times that many? We just didn't have any data. We, no one tracked projects that disappeared because of infrastructure. So the cost share program that that idea and EPCOR and uh, Canadian Home Builders Association were able to create, that was a huge element. Uh, you know, there wasn't a bunch of money up front after, you know, we, we kind of got a year into discussing how it was going to look, but EPCOR did find, well, what was it? Something like $2.4 million in the couch cushions yeah. <laughs> um, for two years. But the critical thing was now we had data right it the process was slow and painful and uh at times very frustrating you know they they have lots of smart people at epcor and you know we were able to to soldier on and 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 get this created and i you know i think you've got a better handle on the stats than i do but i think we had what 37 applications in the first uh in those first two years and what five of them got funded it's uh, 38 and 7. So 38 and 7, yeah. So that that's a lot of projects gone begging, which is, you know, hugely unfortunate, but now we have data, right? And and now we could come to to council with a more compelling story. As a result, EPCOR had their performance-based rates review and the budget for these sorts of projects increased from, you know, 2.4 million to to 20 million over four four years, was it? Uh, over five Sorry. years. Five years? Four million each year for five years. Right. So that's still well short of what we need, but it's definitely a, a big step in the right direction. And the other thing that was happening at the time was the, the creation of city plan that, that identified more specifically where we wanted to add density. Uh, and now the growth management framework is, is, is sharpening the picture there even more. You know, now we can... We can pick our spots, right? We don't have to 
spend a little bit here, spend a little there. We can kind of conglomerate, conglomerate where we upgrade our infrastructure a lot more strategically than we were able to do in the past. So, so the combination of city plan and the efforts that that idea and EPCOR have been been making over the last what is it? God, it seems like a long time. It's probably only four four years, but it's a lot of meetings. <laughs> it has been a lot of meetings, yeah. But uh, it's uh, it's really the only sandbox we've got to play in, right? It's you know, we can't fire Epcor and hire another utility provider. So on we go. Yeah, and for all those listening who are looking to build projects right now, uh, the infill cost share program is open uh, for applications year round. Uh, you can go on Ideas website or Epcor's website. Just type in infill cost share program, and it'll pop up. Um, they do have closing dates three times a year, and you'll be notified whether or not you qualify for the funding. Sorry, I don't have a lot. Of, I don't get a lot of time to promote this program, so <laughs> I'm taking here. And so the next round that it technically closes is the middle of July 2022. Sorry, but it'll tell you if you got the money, and then there'll be funding for the, the next year, and then another phase closes in October. But always submit. Uh, they can update your application as you go. There is money and make sure you do the, your IFPA uh, assessment, which if you haven't listened to that episode a few episodes ago, we had Cameron Bardas on from the city of Edmonton where he is saving, he has saved $90 million worth of infrastructure upgrades. So go figure out how he did that. So pivoting to the other big thing that you and I did, Mick, uh, was our education program that we did with, ex- with the city to expedite infill permits. I couldn't see any fault with that program when... We started talking about it at the board meetings. I remember the city of we went to the city of Edmonton and said, "Hey, our permit timelines are like in the 80s, and Greenfield is in like the 10s. Can you help us ones. out?" <laughs> <The ones>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the city was like, "Well, we want better applications." Sorry, everyone, we're talking about 80 days yeah. to get a permit uh, approved. Business days. Yeah. Business days, not even calendar days. Uh, yeah, the city said they wanted better applications, and I think part of that conversation was we kept moving the goalpost because we kept changing rules and regulations to make infill easier. But part of it was like, do we need better communication? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was so frustrating. Yeah. The good news is we've changed the regulations to make infill easier. The bad news is your uh, <laughs> your permit application is isn't consistent with those regulations so you got to redo it and start at the beginning of the the beginning of the line again oh yeah it was like this vicious circle of like okay well we're making it better for everyone but not site specific stuff you're shooting yourself in the foot so and then the community at the time info was much more of a controversial topic back then so there there needed to be some education around how to talk to the community and what make sure your fence is up and things like that Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah so the program that we created dealt with all those five days of courses, exams, group activities, go through all of that, give faster permits. And I remember when we were going around and shopping the idea to different city councillors and community members and administration, I was so nervous at every one of those meetings. And you were just like, nope, let's just go in, lay out the facts. Tell them where we're at <laughs> and we'll figure it out. I had faith that we were dealing with, I mean, we had conversations with these people and they, these are not stupid people. You know, their their motivations may have differed from ours, but they are in the positions they're 
in because they care about Edmonton. And, you know, many of them didn't have quite the same vision for the city that idea had, but they understood the arguments that we were making. So I was, I was optimistic that eventually they would see the light and agree with idea. And eventually they did. At least enough of them did. It ended up being really collaborative because of the approach that you took of like, here's all of our cards. Here's what we're trying to achieve. We're not holding anything back. Poor Ryan. He met me at the wrong time. And I forced him to be the main teacher for the program and build it out with me. (laughs) But we've had over 60 companies go through the program since then. Mm -hmm. Um, And a huge thank you to uh, previous counselor, Bev Esslinger, who was one of the big sponsors of the program. I really got it off the ground. Yeah, it makes such a difference to have a champion. Um, you know, it's it's made a difference to the industry. And it's still frustrating. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that our relationship with the media is going to going to improve. I mean, it has improved somewhat. It's, we're not as much of a novelty. Uh, infill's not as much of a novelty as it used to be. We end up with a rogue builder who does something wrong and, and has a a negative impact on a neighboring property. It doesn't make the news when it happens in in, in a greenfield neighborhood, and it happens often. But uh, it's uh, it's on the front page when it happens in an infill scenario, unfortunately. So we we continue to have work to do. But hey, that's what idea is here for. Yeah, and I don't know if I shared this with you. About a month ago, I went to uh, City Council. We were doing the annual infill compliance update. The numbers that that city administration presented from the data they were tracking was that infill complaints have dropped by over 50% uh, since we kicked off the education program. Yeah, wow. There's no better stat in the world than than that. No, that's huge. (laughs) Yeah, well, hooray for idea. And everyone was at home for the past year. So I thought, I was like, oh, no, complaints are going to go up. Everyone's watching every, every little oh, thing. Yeah. But uh, to see it go down was just, yeah, I've been I've been riding on a high since that day, to be honest. Yeah, so I'll, I'll plug it one more time, the education program. Next round's coming up, end of June, June 22nd, the first day of the courses. Uh, come learn from industry experts. We have the city come out and speak to to you all, and you actually get to do it in person, so network with each other. Uh, and I promise there'll be killer food. There won't be brownies this year because, unfortunately, the caterer who used to work at Concordia uh, has moved on to bigger and better things. So I'll find a different dessert that's fabulous. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I, I think it needs to be stated that the the folks from the city – of Edmonton who are helping provide these courses have been first class. And it's, it's a really great partnership. They've, they've sent us some excellent quality people and uh, that's reflected uh, in the results, right? We're, we're achieving what, what we set out to achieve and uh, you know, hopefully we can, we can keep building on this. Yeah, it shows, I like the way that you frame that because often in our industry, it's uh, often framed as like a battle with administration. But uh, we created this program and the cost share program, and we'll talk a little bit about what you're working on next, but the importance of working together rather than being adversarial. Like you said, there's lots of smart people on both sides and yeah, just getting everybody kind of pushing in the same direction or speaking the same language is, is crucial. There's a few other elements that I think a lot of people in the private sector don't consider. So one of them is people go to work for big bureaucracies like the city and for utilities because they like the structure of big organizations and the you know there's a and the stability. They're not organizations that turn on a dime the way you know the way that my company can. So 
we shouldn't be surprised when they move slowly and, 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 that, and when they don't turn on a dime. That's just not how they're set up. The other factor is if my company screws something up, well, yeah, we'll, we'll take our, our financial lumps and we'll fix it and move on. When the city of Edmonton or Epcor or Atco Gas screw something up, it's front page news and they get, there's a lot more at stake for them than there is for, for most companies in the private sector. So they have to be cautious. It's, it makes sense for them to be cautious. When the veins are throbbing in my forehead because, you know, <laughs> we didn't get through what I was hoping we would get through in a meeting and, and now we're going to have another meeting to talk about it. I just remind myself of that. We're getting there. Yeah, and I'm sure you learned some of those skills from our communications course at the uh, education program. For sure. Yes, indeed. We spend a full day on empathy. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I want to. I want to transition a little bit here, Mick. Um, what are you working? You're the chair of the infrastructure committee at Idea. Um, you've championed the water. Uh, we've mm -hmm. talked about that a little bit. What's the next infrastructure hurdle that you're you and your team are working on over there? Oh, well, there's two. Um, one is lot servicing. So again, water related, but also sewer related. So um, costs for that are very high. It costs about $20,000 just for a residential service. That seems out of line, particularly when it's a three to five meter long excavation that they have to make to make the connection. My excavator typically charges me around $3,000 to dig a, a trench about 80 feet long. So what's that in meters? 35 meters long, 10 times the trench for a fraction of the cost. Something seems out of kilter. I mean, granted, they have to most of the time cut through the concrete in the alley and sorry, the asphalt in the alley and replace that. But yeah, seems out of line. So we're, we're working on that. The other thing is second initiative is some kind of a portal. Uh, so beyond the lot, the servicing costs, we're trying to get Epcor to create a portal where a builder can... Um, apply for the services he needs on, you know, at a certain address, and we can see where in the queue he he sits. So this is an effort to keep out of each other's way. At present, you pay your twenty thousand dollars, and Epcor says, okay, we will be there sometime in June or July. You know, <laughs> they they give you a huge window. The expectation is you keep clear of where they will be working. For, through that time frame, uh, which is really not possible. You've got you've got other stuff going on on the site. You're building houses and garages and 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 all that sort of stuff. So this way, with a portal, you can you can log in and say, "Hey, look at they're going to be here in a week and a half. So maybe I better postpone putting my garage in um, till they're done." So that's that's something that we're working on. Third thing is electrical infrastructure and that's a bit of a different creature because it is epcor although it's the same company epcor electric is regulated by the province rather than the city um, so we've got a whole different bureaucracy to to try and navigate uh what is it called the alberta utilities commission yeah they've been great one of the things that made me happy and also sad is that they said you know this is the the first time we've had a meeting with anyone uh developing infill. We didn't realize these issues existed. So, you know, you, you draw a sigh and, <clears throat> and uh, wonder where they've been all this time, but also have some gratitude for the fact that now we're talking and, and, and trying to get these problems solved with the right people at the table. 
So the, the conversation continues and uh, we also need to acknowledge that we're asking our grid to do a whole bunch more than we ever did. We're asking it to work in both directions as we as more people are putting solar panels on their roofs. Um, we are also, you know, there are initiatives to net zero housing, you know, which is of growing interest. And people are building these super insulated houses with solar panels on the roof. And many of them are opting not to make a gas connection, right? So now they're heating their houses using electricity. Um, they're not installing gas stoves they're, or gas barbecues. Everything is electric now. That adds a ton of demand to the, to the grid. Now we're also talking about charging electric cars. So that's, a, that's another 30 amps of demand on the grid. The prevailing wisdom is, you know, those cars are going to be charged at nighttime when people aren't, you know, washing their clothes or watching TV or cooking their dinner. But that's also the time when the solar panels aren't producing anything. Lots of moving parts that really weren't, weren't meaningful 10 years ago. So, yeah. It's not surprising that we weren't really having those conversations 10 years ago. Yeah, no kidding. And um, density is another one. Like our power grid was created for the block sizes that we currently have with the same with the number of houses that we currently have on there. But as we you know, increase the number of houses on that block or the um, number of suites, you and I talked about it, most basement suites or garage suites are just getting uh, heated with baseboard electric. So that adds a little bit more load as well. So the grid was never really designed to handle this level of density. I think it goes back to your discussion about we've never really planned. We want to be supportive of density, but we don't really have the infrastructure to support it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what kinds of changes you've seen, even, you know, Band-Aid solutions that have been implemented to address some of these issues, if anything. I've got a lot to learn yet about our electrical infrastructure. Um, I think it's probably helpful that uh, in most mature neighborhoods, that those wires are above ground. It makes it a whole lot easier to to upgrade them, I would presume, than, than the ones that are buried. I'm not sure, you know, how that all works, right? There, there's a substation that goes to a transformer and, and uh, you know, the wire sizes for all that stuff are key. And then there's also the load on the, on the power poles changes if you're adding heavier wire to it. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of pieces here that I think we're only just starting to to get our heads around, and uh, there's a lot of challenges in our in our future as we as we continue to develop these mature neighborhoods, and and none of these challenges are are going to be inexpensive to fix. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting because infill starting to get closer to those neighborhoods that have buried infrastructure now. So it's, it's starting in Greenfield and Aspen Gardens, just to name a couple of Southside examples, but they have underground power infrastructure. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens um, with those neighborhoods, if it's easier to, or if it's more challenging to upgrade those systems if it's necessary. But yeah, I think that's kind of fascinating. What about... Um, you, you know, adding more transformers? Uh, are they doing anything kind of inside the building? Like, are there any kind of mechanisms that are preventing, you know, overload of the system? There's a few things they're doing. I, I have a friend who developed a, a seven unit apartment on a lot that had a single family house and it was fairly close to downtown. And he was able to get Epcor to install a pole mounted transformer. So that's one of those things that looks like a trash can, you know, nailed to the top of the, of the power pole. So that solved the problem for him. Um, and I don't know how readily that can be done. And, you know, clearly it can be done from sometimes it comes down to the wires that 
are running along those poles next to the property. In some of the new neighborhoods, they're installing load misers, uh, which is a device that goes on the panel that prohibits you from, say, running your hot tub and your air conditioner at the same time, right? You can have one or the other. Having both is more than the service to your house can handle. So you get to, you know, it, it automatically switches from one to the other and prevents you having both. And I don't know, you know, what happens when that extends, right? Can you use your cooktop but not your oven? Is is that what they're at, at a certain point? Consumers are going to say, forget it. I'm not going to move into this neighborhood and buy this house. I'm going to move somewhere else, you know, and then that'll leave the, the builder or the developer with a, a kind of a stranded lot or, or a bunch of lots. So, <clears throat> so it's a real challenge to, to growth. As far as adding density to mature neighborhoods, well, it's an ongoing issue, particularly with city plan. We've got some solid density targets. Half the people who are going to move to Edmonton in the next 50 years are going to need to move into mature neighborhoods or neighborhoods that are already developed. One of the frustrating things that that I see when I'm talking to people about multifamily projects, particularly missing middle projects. I think I think those are a great fit for for our mature neighborhoods. These are the the four unit to to say 50 unit buildings um, rather than the giant high rise. I think we can fit them into a neighborhood without really disrupting the feel of the neighborhood in any substantial way. People resist change to their neighborhood, right? It's uh, <clears throat> it's I think a normal protection mechanism and and you know that's I think we need to keep having these conversations. You know, back to infrastructure, new greenfield neighborhoods don't get approved by city council unless there are, I think, 49 dwelling units per hectare. That's how density is measured. Most of our mature neighborhoods are somewhere around 15 dwelling units per hectare. So not even a third of, of what mature neighborhoods need to be, or sorry, greenfield neighborhoods need to be these days. And yet we shy away from efforts to add, add more density. Got to keep plugging away. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with the power conversation. Uh, from my understanding, it's not that we like we have enough juice in the system, but we don't have the infrastructure to move that juice around in an efficient way. I know you're talking a little bit about uh, those boxes that are supposed to optimize how the neighborhood uses, and I, I think it's by by block, but and and not just by home. Uh, so let's say if you both you and your neighbor had an EV car, yours would charge. 20 or 30 percent and then there's a charge and then it would go back and forth overnight so that by the time you wake up you're both charged but yeah if one of you yeah. had to leave in the middle of the night at least you'd have a 50 percent charge yeah oh well, i've heard that the teslas can c- communicate with each other if they're within a certain proximity so if there's you know eight teslas on the block they all take turns charging for a bit and then you know they they, they cycle through the chart the the load that way it's really cool yeah, well, and I think that's something like we have smart meters for water. Uh, I, I'm sure that's the next thing that needs needs to happen for Epcor is smart meters for power. But yeah, that moving around power poles to allow for uh, medium scale projects, I think it's like thirty or forty grand to move around a power pole. Yeah, it depends. It it depends what's on that pole. I I, I recently, or a couple of years ago, I guess it was a, a project in Macaulay. Uh, the quote was just over eighteen thousand. So you know, I, hearing that forty, thirty, or forty thousand, I, I didn't feel lucky at the time, but I'm, I'm feeling luckier. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, maybe it was a constraint site or something. I'll have to go ask uh, the member who talked to me about it. Well, there was another member. Remember that? I don't know that conversation. He had a. It was a small. I don't know, a fifty-unit site or something like that, and he had to park a transformer on a on a precast pad that he installed according to. EPCOR's regulations and the the roadblock for him, and he was pretty close to completion, I think. EPCOR's regulation was they needed a, you know, a 10 meter crane to place this transformer. You know, it was probably a regulation that was made for good reason, but there was no room on that site to park a 10 meter crane. Maybe it was a 10 ton crane. Anyway, um, and the transformer wasn't that heavy and it didn't need to reach that far away. Um, so a smaller piece of equipment would have worked. And there was a, actually, I think there was a forklift on site that could have done the job, but because of EPCOR's regulation, you know, it, everything ground to a halt and, and uh, you know, everyone's blood pressure went up and they had to do some kind of a workaround. But it's another example of, of regulations that have been made for, for greenfield development that don't lend themselves to infill. You, uh, you need to call me after because I completely forgot about that example. And one of our members was going through this exact same problem right now. Hmm. And they offered to buy smaller equipment for EPCOR because it would be cheaper than going through a rezoning or, or something, some other thing that would be more drastic. That, that wasn't an option for them to just buy the equipment. Yikes. Uh, so yeah, shoot, shoot me a call after. Uh, we definitely need uh, EPCOR to invest in some city-sized operations. Yeah. Well, not just EPCOR. I mean, one of the other conversations we're involved in is with the garbage, the waste collection people, right? And, you know, they're they're happy with their big three-axle garbage trucks and uh, don't really want to entertain the possibility of, of using different and smaller equipment to, to work on these crowded infill sites. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, and the fire department, I, I think, is another Another example, we've got gigantic fire trucks, but you know, are they going to be able to make it down an alley without banging into something important or, or, or sinking into the surface of the alley because it's not built for that kind of weight? I, uh, I was just in Boston about a week ago from when we're talking now, and all of their historic area is all built like zero lot line right up next to each other. But even in their newer areas, the houses are, are so close together. And we often hear hear uh, that they can't be built that close together because of fire issues. And I'm like, well, how are they doing it there? It's the same building materials. This is they're not, it's not brick in these scenarios in these newer built. Speaking of Boston, one of the great things that recently happened there um, was not this mayor that they have currently, but the previous mayor. He had mandated that everyone was supposed to have access within a 10 minute walk to a green space. And I know Edmonton's starting to shift its focus to, um, like, we've got our downtown park coming up, which is really exciting. They're looking at open space right now to make sure every neighborhood has sufficient green and open space. But I think it it stems from that larger growth management framework conversation that you and I have been having with the city. And for any of those who don't know what that is, we'll have to find it in the the intro. Uh, But it's how we're going to financially look at the city and align how we financially build a city to actually how we build a city. So in the next however long, we're going to get to 1.25 million people. How do we start to change that way from your point of view, Mick? I mean, this is all aligned with the with you know Boston-like neighborhoods, right? So the 15-minute neighborhood that you hear people talking about uh, actually more, more and more frequently, 
Um, the idea being everyone should be either a 15-minute walk or bike ride or transit ride to a place where they can recreate, like a park or uh, a restaurant or a coffee shop or a pub or a grocery store. All these sorts of amenities shouldn't require getting into your car and driving across town. So your kids can play near your house. You, they can go to school near your house. You can go shopping near your house. You can go for a beer with your neighbor. All, all that should be doable in Edmonton. And that's the vision for the city plan. And we're narrowing down that vision to, you know, actual nuts and bolts of how we're going to get there with the growth management framework. I think it's tremendously exciting, you know, and it implies that we're going to have to change our neighborhoods. So there's an acceptance of that fact there. And and now we're figuring out what, what changes are good and what changes are off the table. So that's a great conversation for us to be having. And of course, it's going to be impacted by infrastructure. We're having that conversation as well. So it doesn't seem like it when you're, you're neck deep in the details of, you know, the trying to get the changes made. But Edmonton is way ahead of the curve as far as North American cities go. <clears throat> We're real leaders in, in, in this regard, and, and we should be proud. Yeah, 100%. I think of this downtown park and how many development projects are spurring up around it. And yeah, the city's invested quite a bit into this park, but I think they're going to see the returns uh, in the projects that, that go up around it. And I know we talk a lot about nodes and corridors as a city uh, and wanting to create amazing main streets, but I think we also need to look at how, how we build up around parks and schools because that's where people want to be. That's where density should exist. Right. And it, 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 needs to be part of the conversation. I mean, most people don't, we've been closing schools in mature neighborhoods over the last, you know, five to seven years. So people who live in those neighborhoods understand the implications, but I don't think most people think about what happens to a neighborhood when they close the elementary school. How does the neighborhood come back from that? And and what is the impact? You know, they consolidate schools. So now that's putting more cars on the road and more school buses on the road. And, and those poor kids are having long commutes to school and back. So how is that optimizing our city? To me, a terrible decision. And it's one born from the lack of density we have in these mature neighborhoods. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, there are tons of kids in the neighborhood. The schools, I'm sure, were chock-a-block, but you know, those kids have grown up and moved away for the most part. You know, Some of them are starting to move back, but uh, in the meantime, the cost of the land is appreciated. <clears throat> you know, The houses that were selling for less than $20,000 in the 50s are now selling for close to $500,000. So there's an affordability challenge there. It's, and the only way we could enable young families to move into those neighborhoods, or one of the only ways, is to spread the cost of that land over more units. The other thing it does for the city is it allows, it, it creates more taxpayers per, per meter of road, per school, per library, per fire station. You know, these are all costs that the city has to pay every year, no matter what. So they can't just close fire stations and police stations and there's regulations that prohibit that. So those still have to get paid for. You know, we need taxpayers in these neighborhoods to do that. I've been nerding out about this sort of stuff over the last year or two. Um, I've been reading articles on this website called strongtowns.org. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but they talk a lot about creating a, a resilient town or city. So, and that resiliency manifests itself in different ways. So, you know, one of them is 
back to this 15 minute neighborhood scenario, if you don't have enough people in the neighborhood, you're not going to be able to sustain a coffee shop or a little grocery store or, or, you know, more than one restaurant. If we want vibrant neighborhoods where there's lots to do within a walk, we need to have more people in that neighborhood. The other thing is, uh, you know, the, the suburban type car oriented growth is really not affordable. Um, and, and a lot of people, I, I don't think this has been a big enough part of our conversation as a city. I've, I've looked at it in a few different ways. Um, I, I looked at the latest budget and, you know, found the, the total number of lane kilometers of road we've got in Edmonton and, you know, in a different part of the budget, you know, how much those roads are worth. So you can kind of extrapolate what the cost per lane kilometer is and it's $2.2 million. That's a lot of money. So I narrowed it down a little bit to look at my block in, in the Grosvenor neighborhood. My block is 1100, no, 111 meters long, and there are 16 lots on it. So that means there's 6.9 meters per lot. So the, the lots are pretty small here on average. They're only 33 foot lots for the most part. If we work through the math, that means the road in front of my house, those four lanes of road, so there's basically two lanes of traffic and two lanes of parking in each direction, it's $61,000. You know, $61,000, you know, if we replace that in 25 years, $2,440 per year that I should be paying in taxes to replace the road in front of my house. I'm not paying that. The funny thing is, it's they're mandated to do it every eight years. <laughs> Wasn't that what we found out, Ryan, at one of our last episodes? It's a pipe dream. You know, it's not it's not going to happen. So not without taxing people out of the city. What gives? How, how do we, we need more taxpayers is the only solution that I can see. Yeah, for sure. This is a really hot topic right now. I know there was a news article um, that came out um, talking about a presentation that was made to council that, you know, if all the projects and all the programs that are already committed to keep going, we're staring down the barrel of like an 8% residential tax increase next year already, which would be the first of its kind in, in Edmonton for sure. I, I think it goes beyond residential taxes. I agree with you, you know, for your street. And I, I remember when you told me how much you're paying for taxes on your street, I, I my eyes bugged out of my face. Um, so to pay that extra $2,200 a year to get your road replaced, uh, that would bankrupt a lot of people there. Yeah. But non-residential tax base, Mariah and I talk about the need to increase and make uh, you know commercial developments within neighborhoods more viable as well. But non-residential taxes are, are much higher than our residential taxes. We've kept them so low forever to stay competitive. But what it's done, in, in my opinion, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Mick, it's, it's kind of driven a lot of these companies and businesses to the outskirts of the city um, in kind of suburban areas and power centers. And then industry is kind of outside the city completely mm -hmm. to find cheaper taxes in Atchison and Nisku and the heartland and that kind of thing. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear about what your thoughts are on, on kind of the, the comparison between kind of suburban and infill non-residential taxes as well. Yeah. It's uh, again, there's a, there's a density problem and you know the industrial development i kind of get why we want it out of town like i don't think i would want to live very close to a refinery for example you know the other stuff that we've sort of marginalized is is you know is retail for example we create these power centers like the outlet mall by the airport and i did an a, a bit of an analysis of uh, south edmonton common i looked at a 
parcel there and I compared it to uh, a couple of blocks in Strathcona, looking at what the tax assessments were in total and comparing them to well to each other. So the the total tax assessment per meter there's or sorry per hectare was was huge. So the little stretch of Strathcona I looked at the assessed value per hectare was forty seven thousand five hundred dollars in south edmonton common it was four thousand seven hundred and nineteen dollars so strathcona is worth 10 times more so they're littler stores they're you know we're not strathcona is not paying for gigantic parking lots um as, as south common is so yeah we need to ask ourselves as as residents of Edmonton, where does that money come from? I know the city spent an enormous amount of money on that 23rd Avenue interchange, though that was taxpayer money. It, there may have been some private funding added there, but I don't think it was that significant. So we're facilitating this huge development of retail stores built around massive quantities of asphalt. It's really not returning much, especially compared to Strathcona. And, uh, I think that sort of analysis needs to be done a lot more regularly by the city, just to be realistic about what what we're paying for our automobile infrastructure. You know, the same is true for for the example of my street, right? I've got four lanes in front of my house. The curb lane on each side is is parked cars. That's not free. Yeah, we need to be a little more mature and realistic about what our city is actually costing us and what the present development patterns are leading to in terms of bills for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that you bring up the parked car situation. I know we've talked a lot about operating budgets at Idea. You build it, and then you you have to maintain it. That's how cities work. Yeah, and I looked at um, I looked at the growth of our operating budget and compared it to our population, and I also compared it to our developed footprint, and it tracked almost exactly with our developed footprint. So. You know, what it tells us is that the bigger our city gets, the more it costs per capita to operate it, right? We we keep building all these roads and now we've got to plow them and maintain them. And we've got, you know, we've got to build more police stations and libraries and fire stations that we've got to staff. It just keeps on going. We can't, we can't keep sprawling, even at the higher densities. I, I think it's a mistake and we really need to focus on adding that density to our mature neighborhoods and, and capitalizing on the infrastructure we've already got. So Mick, the last thing we always do, and I know you're a huge fan of the podcast, so you know this, but uh, we do a call to action at the end. So what do you want people to get out and do or know? This is my favorite part. What I want people to do is, especially people who live in mature neighborhoods, is join their community leagues and start a conversation about density. In Grosvenor, we're going to have the LRT going right past our house, not right past our house, a block or so away from our house, but right through our neighborhood. And we know from the growth management framework and city plan that we're going to need density along that transportation corridor. So we've already got West Block on the busy corner at 142nd and Sony Plain Road. Is that the kind of density we want to see? Do we want to see towers on all the busy corners or do we want to see some townhouses and some low-rise stuff, maybe a pocket neighborhood where we've got a dozen or so houses with a shared backyard space? There's a whole bunch of different options. As a group of people in the neighborhood, we need to have that conversation. Otherwise, it's just going to get piled on us, right, without us really 
paying attention. So, so there's two sides to that conversation. One, let's understand and be mature about the fact that we, we need to add density. And two, let's talk about what kind of density that's going to look like. Yeah, well done. Um, Mick, every time we talk to you, uh, we learn something that can be said today as well. So really want to thank you for coming on the episode today and for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Mick. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad that we had Mick on. That was such a great conversation. Yeah, Mick's the best. Yeah, I know we uh, we just talked about growth management with him and how we're going to finance the city. Uh, and we defined growth management at the beginning of the episode. But I just want to give a shout out to June 15th, June 14th, June 15th. Growth management report is going to Urban Planning Committee for an update. So if you're interested in all of that, go listen to that or register to speak or send your council uh, member an email about how you feel about the report. Um, because it will have budgetary implications for the upcoming budget. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I guess that's two weeks away from when we're recording this. Has any of the information that's going to be presented been posted already? Like, have you seen anything, or is it going to be um, simply an update? Uh, so it's an information report. It goes live. Uh, so we're recording on the 27th of May, uh, and it goes live, I believe, next week, because uh, Councillor Andrew Knack, about six months ago, made a motion to have reports released two weeks early uh, to give people uh, like the public as well as council more time to read all those reports that get, that get released, uh, which I very much appreciate. So it should be out soon. This episode will have aired after. <laughs> so that shout out is no longer relevant, but we can uh, check out, you know, it'll probably be in the newsletter, I would imagine, the idea newsletter. Well, um, be a hundred percent in the newsletter. <laughs> you could go, go watch the council meeting on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you're listening to this in the future, yeah, this is the problem. We're like, a, we're way too uh, ahead of schedule here with our recordings, but it's, it's working out really nicely. Yeah, shout out to Natalia, who's our new podcast uh, team member who's making us a lot more organized, uh, which will allow me and you to take that two-week break around my brother's wedding and our education courses. Absolutely. What do we need to talk about? What do you want to talk about? There was so much that we covered there that I found super interesting. And I know when we you know, compiled all our notes here, we cut out a lot of information. But yeah, where do you want to go? I think we should talk about the lanes that we have to build, which is just crazy. I'm not sure uh, Mick was talking about four lanes. Yeah. So Mick in, in the episode was talking about how much it would cost to replace the road. And he did an example of his block. And I think it's in Grosvenor. And I hope he doesn't mind that I said that. I can't remember if he said that in the episode. But anyway, so to replace like a four lane road costs about $2 million per lane kilometer. I did a little bit of research on what it would cost in the suburbs. Um, talked to a few people and got some construction costs for this year. Uh, I said in the episode, it's about 3.5 million. Um, I was a little bit off. So that was, I, I double checked again, and that was per linear meter, not per lane kilometer. So for a similar situation, like what Mick's talking about four lanes, it works out to about 1.125 meter per lane kilometer. So still about half of what it would cost in an infill situation is what it would cost in, the, in, the, in a suburban situation. So still very relevant information, but yeah, how crazy is that? Where does that money come from? 
where does that money come from? Not from taxes, because nobody wants to increase those. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. comes from more people paying taxes. Yeah, I agree. I think we're staring down the barrel of a tax increase at some point. If it just feels like we're like approaching this tipping point where the taxes are going to go skyrocketing. And I know there was that report or that news article. Um, I think I referenced it in the in the episode, but that was talking about like an eight percent increase is what we're kind of looking at uh, for next year if all the programs get funded the way they're supposed to. So um, an 8% tax increase with all the inflation that's going on too, my God. I know, it's so expensive. And I think the majority of cities are going through this problem where we've taken a beating for the past three years and now we're in recovery mode. How do you recover without investing? Uh, But how do you do it with also keeping citizens in mind um, and making sure that we're providing good value for their money and not just, yeah, nice, not Christmas Day every day. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was. And I still think we're taking a beating. I went and bought two four by four posts for a project I'm working on in the backyard. It cost me 50 bucks for two posts. What on earth? So yeah, everything is, we're still taking a beating now. Um, the density conversation, I think was really interesting. Um, just one small fact check. Mick said that the um, minimum density for new greenfield areas is 49 dwelling units per net residential hectares. He was close. It's actually 45. Um, and this is all required by the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Growth Plan, and which we're going to talk about in future episodes as well. Uh, interestingly, in that same growth plan, it talks about 25% of that density should be in uh, what they call urban areas, which, you know, we can extrapolate and interpret as infill situations. So, you know, we talked about how we hit, what did we hit? 22, 23% infill last year or 28? What did we hit? 28 and 2020. So we're achieving that already. That's awesome. But anyways, the lowest, um, allowable density just for reference is, uh, um, any new development, uh, in a suburban area is 20 dwelling units per net residential hectares. That's for like hamlets and really small towns. And that seems super low considering that new neighborhoods here need to be 45. Um, but I did a little bit of a calculation just for my own neighborhood because I was super curious. So I live in McKernan. I took census data from 2019 because that's all I could find because StatsCan is a little bit late on the 2021 census so far. But McKernan has about a density of 22 dwelling units per net residential hectare. So about half of what new neighborhoods in suburban contexts are achieving. So we need more. We absolutely need more. Um, the equivalent would be like the town of Redwater. That's how dense the neighborhood of McKernan is. Think about that for a second. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of infill neighborhoods that are even lower than that. Some of them are like 14, 13, even 10 I've heard before. It's yeah, my parents my parents live in Blue Quill and theirs would be um, about 11 or 12, I think is what I calculated it out to. The, the craziest thing about that is like they have rear lanes, but front attached garages. It's like the most inefficient neighborhood I've ever seen in my entire life. But yeah, their density is super low and infill is just starting to creep in. So I can't wait to have a conversation around the Sunday dinner table with my dad about why lot splits are dangerous. <laughs> I keep you posted on that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Um, last thing we got to fact check, I think, is um, Mick mentioned uh, a cost uh, about thirty to forty thousand dollars to move a power pole. So I double checked with somebody that I know that um, uh, had to move one, and they said that it was that's a fairly accurate range, but it depends on a lot of factors. So like, how far are you moving the power uh, the power pole? How many 
connection points to this power pole need to be moved? Like, is it connecting to other things other than other power poles, like houses or something like that, um, where you're moving it to. So do you need to like rip up concrete? Is there even a spot to move it in? Um, the guy that I was talking to mentioned that in one circumstance, uh, they couldn't even move a power pole. They were ready to pay that thirty to $40,000 because it was going to be located right in the middle of their driveway. But Epcor said there was no place, no safe place to move it. So uh, they had to redesign their site. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's kind of crazy. And what I've heard from Epcor is that there is enough power in the grid. Uh, there's just moving around the power is can be like the challenge. So the enough wires that can hold enough juice, where it's located, all that stuff. Um, and they also have clearance policies, right? Like you can't put the power pole super close to something. So it's tricky. And I recommend getting involved, getting Epcor involved in your projects as early as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's really good advice. And we definitely want to have someone from Epcor Power on our podcast if anyone's listening. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's interesting because we've worked a lot with Epcor Water over the past four years in creating the Infill Cashier program, which has just been unbelievably great they were fantastic to work with on that program it was hard because like we didn't have data at the beginning of the program like we had no idea how many projects were like trying to be built and weren't able to be built because of these skyrocketing uh public infrastructure costs um and so part of i know we talked about it in the episode but that was a big part of the success of that program and we also had to work within their constraints, and the city's constraints and industry's constraints. But I feel like it's been so successful. I know in uh, the episode that we had with Cameron, we talked about the IFPA program, which is roughly 80% of projects who go and get an IFPA from Cam. He's like, you don't need to do these upgrades. The neighborhood is actually great. Uh, and the way people use water is significantly different than what we did 20 years ago, we've actually, uh, <laughs> of course, um, a week previous from today, they had a report saying, oh, I, I'm not even going to quote it. We'll have to do it in a different episode. But like <laughs> Edmontonians have significantly reduced their water usage uh, through efficient appliances and through just like the way we live. Um, so they, we, we have capacity in the majority of the city. It's just we need more hydrants um, <laughs> to get it to the right places. So that's really great. And then the cost share program kind of makes up that difference of the 20% that still need to move forward to provide housing options for the neighborhood, uh, but maybe aren't located in the spot where there is a big pipe or medium-sized pipe. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been an overwhelming success, I think. Um, I wasn't around for the beginnings of it like you were, but... Um, I am happy to hear that, you know, that some of that nervousness um, beforehand has kind of passed. And now obviously the program got funded for even more. But yeah, going back to that data thing, data, we're in the age of data right now, right? It's super important. And I'm excited to see where all that gathering of data and analysis, where that goes in the future. And I definitely agree with you that um, power seems to be kind of the next hurdle here with um, third grid that's a little bit old. Where power exists at like 100 amps versus 200 amps. Um, what do you need to tie into all of that stuff? We're working now with Epcor Power of how we can create uh, more transparency in their systems uh, so that they get less phone calls and they can be efficient in their time and not have, not be bothered with my members calling them every 10 minutes to get their opinion on things. 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know what I found interesting from what Mick was saying is that complaints for infill builders are down by 50%. And we didn't fact check this or anything, but I thought that was fascinating. And obviously that's because of, uh, in no small part to the builder education program, but I think just overall our, you know, acceptance of infill and the quality of the builders is just going up because it's becoming more commonplace. It's not as uh, unique as it once was. Is that an accurate way of looking at it or? Yeah, 100%. And honestly, like a shout out to you because you did most of the fact checks uh, and even the definitions for this episode. But this was the one I did fact check. <laughs> so complaints did go down by 50%. Uh, in the last annual infill compliance report, it was a huge reduction, which was great, especially over the pandemic where everyone was home. And that reduction lined up exactly with when our program kicked off. And I couldn't be more proud of it and couldn't be more proud of the infill industry. I think they've made really strong connections with their communities and they're just wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. The quality of the builders has gone up and yeah, like having those conversations with your neighbors always helps. But um, yeah, I don't think people are as scared about it anymore because we have enough data now to see what it uh, does for a neighborhood. Yeah. So when uh, the next infill builder goes into Blue Quill and your dad gets to check out the site, uh, hopefully it's a good experience for both sides, him and the builder and the future homeowner. I don't think my dad would know how to complain, but he would certainly stand with his hands on his hips and watch the entire thing happen from demo to excavation to the build going up. He would probably even offer to grab a hammer and go out on site there and show all the young whippersnappers how to do it. Um, so yeah, if you're looking to infill in Blue Quill, stay away from uh, from from my dad's area for sure there. But yeah, it's it's exciting. It's I'm I'm happy that the conversation is moving in the right direction and you know everybody is kind of um, improving the quality of infill for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me this fr uh, this Friday and uh, go enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Mm -hmm.